Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare with Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter, a show where we speak to the top thought leaders in health innovation, health policy, care delivery, and the great minds who are shaping the healthcare of the future. This week, Mark and Margaret speak with Dr. Lee Beers, president of the American Academy of Pediatrics, on the organization's newly released guidelines for sending kids back safely to school. They're recommending all kids be masked in schools and that children 12 and older should be vaccinated as soon as possible to protect them against the more contagious Delta variant, which is impacting and sickening more young people. She also talks about the need to address mental health of America's children in a more embedded way within pediatric care. Lori Robertson also checks in. Managing editor of factcheck.org looks at misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain, separating the fake from the facts. And we end with a bright idea that's improving health and well-being in everyday lives. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also hear us by asking Alexa to play the program. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Dr. Lee Beers here on Conversations on Health. We're speaking today with Dr. Lee Beers, president of the American Academy of Pediatrics, representing 67,000 pediatric medical professionals. The Academy just released its guidelines for uh, safely returning children to the classroom during the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Beers is the medical director for community health and advocacy at Children's National Hospital, and she's the founding director of the DC Mental Health Access and Pediatrics Program. She's also the co-director of the Early Childhood Innovation Network. Dr. Beers, we welcome you to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and you know, uh, what a difficult time for families with school-aged children. But the nation's really uh, reeling from another surge in COVID-19 and really fueled by the Delta variant. And we're seeing a disjointed approach to back-to-school protocols as the virus surges uh, across the country. And I'm wondering how your organization uh, is offering guidance to families and to clinicians and educators and particularly focus in on children and young people who are now getting sick, because I think that's a worry that families have. It's a, it's a challenge for a lot of families. You know, I think there's a couple of things, you know, you mentioned as we started that the AP American Academy of Pediatrics has guidance around safe return to schools. And I think that's actually guidance we've had throughout the pandemic. Um, and just like all of our guidance around COVID, we review and update it really regularly. Actually, about once a month, we take a look at it and make sure there's nothing that's changed, nothing that needs to be updated. And the, the real key sort of behind our guidance is, is one, that it's incredibly important for children to be in in-person school for all sorts of reasons which we can talk about. Yeah. Um, but two, that, that we can do that safely with good layered precautions. And I think it's those two things together that are, are so important to talk about, you know, both the importance of return to school, but also also the fact that to do that safely, we really have to layer precautions to help keep our children safe. Certainly just even by putting out the guidance, I, I, we have seen that be helpful for communities and pediatricians. Um, we also have information um, on our website for parents. We have a great parent-facing website called healthychildren.org. And so a lot, you know, it's a place where parents can find answers to a lot of those questions or things that are worrying them as, as we get back into school. Um, and we've also had some great partnerships with teachers. Um, we're actually getting ready to launch a partnership with the PTA, the Parent Teacher Association, where we'll match up pediatricians and, and school districts so that they can work together to help answer, answer families' questions about anything related to safe return to school. Well, Dr. Beers, I want to start with your most basic recommendation. That's the 
All children age two and older should be masked in school and daycare settings across the country. I'm kind of amazed that I'm presenting this one as an issue for which we are now seeing protests. This, what would seem like most basic public health intervention has become uh, very charged politically and it's turning out to be quite a divisive issue. Talk about the science uh, that drives the American Academy of Pediatric recommendation on masking. And, you know, if you'd like to share, you know, where you think this resistance is coming from yeah, absolutely. And and I think like you, you know, gosh, <laughs> sometimes you do you do you do feel frustrated and and concerned um about the division around this issue. And I, I think our recommendations about this really start from the place of of remembering how important it is for our kids to be safely in in-person school. We know, you know, over the past year, um, we've seen school districts be able to do that safely when they layered precautions, and we've seen school districts where it didn't go as well because because they didn't have those those layered precautions and so you know when it comes to masks they, they really are a safe and effective way to decrease the spread of covid they do really dramatically when used consistently and when used by everybody decrease the spread of covid within school settings for example there was you know a study looking at school districts in georgia where uh, comparing some which had uh, universal mask mandates and and some which made it optional and the schools where there was universal mask wear had had significantly decreased spread of COVID within those school settings. We've known that masks can prevent the spread of, of viruses for a long time, and, and it's just a slightly different setting that, that we're, we're putting them in. I think, you know, some of the other questions that come up are, how can our kids do this? Is this, is this okay for our kids? And, and I think also what we've seen is that kids really adapt very well to, to wearing masks, especially um, if the adults around them just approach it calmly and just help them to know, you know what, this is something we're doing. It, it helps keep you safe and healthy, but it also helps keep your friends. It helps keep your teachers. It helps keep your neighbors safe. You know, I, my son is a 13 year old, a young teenager. And we were talking about this a little bit. And he said, you know what, he's like, I have, I have friends at school who have things that might make them more sick with COVID. Why wouldn't I wear a mask? Kids really do understand that. And they they, they really do understand the importance of, of keeping each other safe. We've seen in a lot of different ways that it's a safe and effective way to decrease the spread of COVID. And the more divisive it gets, the more it takes away from our ability to really focus in on all the other things we really need to be doing too to get the pandemic under control. You know, from educating people about the safety and efficacy of vaccines, it takes away from our, our focus on making sure the kids have a good transition to school. I'm hopeful that as we start to see that those schools where they're not mandating masks are having a harder time, I, I, I hope that, that we can kind of come back together on this. Uh, what's the timeline you expect for younger children to be approved for the vaccine? Right now, it's 12 and over. And what's your sense? You know, we still have a majority of our American parents who are reluctant to vaccinate their children. What is the Academy doing around empowering pediatric practitioners to uh, carry the importance of that message to their patients? You know, I don't think it'll be too long sometime in the fall. You know, it's it's a decision um, by the FDA, and it also depends on what the FDA, you know, what the decision that they make when they review the data. Um, this is a really important part of our vaccine monitoring system is to trust the folks at the FDA to do their job. What, what we're hearing is that the the next group that's likely to be authorized is is five to eleven, and then shortly thereafter, younger than that. So so I think it will come in phases. 
though I would say at the AAP, you know, we've been really um, pretty public about saying, you know, we, we do think that we need to be approaching the authorization of vaccines for younger kids with the same urgency that we did for older adults, because they still can get very sick and any preventable illness is one that, that we want to prevent. This is probably the, the only time in our history where most of the general public has really a good idea about what the vaccine development process is. You know, this isn't something that most people thought a whole lot about before recently. So, of course, folks are going to have questions. I had questions before I got the vaccine. Both of my teenagers are vaccinated. You know, I made sure I had my questions answered. So part of what we're doing for pediatricians is just, you know, making sure that they have the resources to share information with their patients. We've got, you know, again, soon actually getting ready to launch some videos that, that we call them science explainer videos, where they kind of talk through the science of the vaccine. Um, we also have a lot of resources for the pediatricians about how to, how to get the COVID vaccine into their own practices for their patients. So physicians and healthcare providers, they've been working really hard for the past 18 months. So we want to do everything we can to support them. Well, Dr. Beers, speaking of vaccines, when the pandemic hit, pediatric visits just plummeted. We saw instant delays in immunizations and all the other very important things that happen at well-child visits. And, and now the Delta variant is here. And I worry that we're going to see yet another retrenchment from people being, you know, frankly afraid to go into another office to get their routine care when there's still no vaccine available for the little ones and when Delta variant is on the rise. What kind of adjustments or accommodations do we need to protect children from all the conditions for which they get vaccines and also those very important screenings? We, we have seen some pretty dramatic decreases in routine childhood immunizations over the past year. But I think one of the things out of that is that now our pediatricians' offices and all of our doctors' offices know what they need to do to keep families and patients safe while they're in your office. Particularly, I, you know, I was so impressed at the very beginning of the pandemic when this was all very new and practices had to really pivot, you know, just within very short periods of time, how much creativity and innovation and commitment there was to making the, the office safe. You know, we've got you know, pediatricians and offices who are are going out to the parking lot to give vaccines, you know, they've separated out their clinics, they're sick and well, they've made changes to their schedule. So maybe you see all your well patients or, you know, first half of the day, your sick patients, the second half of the day. So lots, lots of different accommodations have been made to make sure that, that our offices are as safe We've done a lot of media about it, um, you know, talking about how important it is to get back in. We've, you know, for some families, it's fear. For some, it's just, it's been a hard year. And so, you know, if now it's been a while, we want to make sure that, that everybody's getting back in so we can get kids up to date on all their shots. But, but also, you know, all those other things um, that you mentioned that are so important, you know, chronic disease management, screening for mental health concerns, developmental issues, all of those things. We're speaking today with Dr. Lee Beers, president of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Dr. Beers, you've been a longtime advocate advancing community health with really a, a particular focus on social determinants of health. Also, how might some of the interventions such as school-based health centers uh, where children sp spend most of their days offer a more efficient, effective, hopefully elegant approach to assessing and addressing a child's needs, uh, especially our most vulnerable children? There's so many different influences on, on the health of a child and a family. And I, I think, 
you know, in many ways, one of the things that underlies a lot of the work that I do is, is really, you know, the belief that we want to meet families where they are and provide care and services in the most accessible place. And so sometimes that, that means where patients, you know, live, go to school and play, um, you know, so schools are a perfect example of a place where, um, you know, we, we can provide support. School-based health centers are, a, you know, tremendous part of, of our medical community. We can, you know, make the care really accessible. Um, the, the students in the school and the families in the school really get to know the school-based health center staff. So they feel really comfortable with them and they can, can ask them questions that they might be embarrassed to ask someone they don't know as well. So um, our school nurses are also really tremendous partners. Um, we've got some great examples across the country of school nurses really partnering with their communities and, and with their, their school systems to, you know, give information about, about COVID-19 or partner for immunization delivery, things like that. So, so I think that's, that's been a really important piece, but, but ultimately we want to try to find the places where, where, you know, patients and families and kids feel comfortable and safe and, you know, able to have their questions and concerns answered. Dr. Beers, there's also been a movement in the country for several years now towards pediatric practices, embedding behavioral health specialists, interventionists, right within the pediatric practice as well. I wonder if you could both speak to, uh, you know, is that a trend that is growing that we're going to see more of that parents might expect that there would be a child clinician or psychologist available uh, to see their child, but also maybe comment on what are your colleagues seeing in terms of behavioral health disruption or symptoms? Because my, my guess is it's gonna call for some new strategies based on what people have been through in this past year. I mean, anyone listening knows that that we have actually really been in a mental health crisis for young people for a long time now. This even this predated the pandemic, and the pandemic has really accelerated that. It's made it much more acute, and it's also just it's harder to access mental health services, which were already really hard to access. It sort of burned in my memory a comment from a, a pediatrician who said, you know, I have treated more kids in my office for mental health concerns this month than I have for ear infections. Um, and so I think that speaks to the scope of, of what, what we're seeing. You know, I, we're sort of the first ones many times to see when an issue is starting to bubble up because we're hearing about it from, from you know, patients, you know, one at a time, but, but we're, we're really start, you know, you really, you start to get a sense like, wait, everybody's calling me about this. What's going on with that? And next thing you know, it, it's showing up in the data. Um, and, and I think mental health is, is very much like that. And there's a lot of reasons for it. I mean, um, you know, of course, the disruption to school and the social isolation plays a role in that. But many families have also experienced grief and loss in their family. Um, they've had economic disruptions that are very stressful for their family. Um, you know, we have a lot of concern about uh, increased violence or abuse in the homes during this, this period of time. So any, any one of those things could be contributing. Um, you know, we, we know there just aren't enough child psychiatrists across the country to, to meet this whole need. And so we do have to think about how, how we do things a little bit differently. And I think just like with the school-based health centers, having mental health care in a place where families feel comfortable, where um, it feels less stigmatizing is a really important strategy. And when you see 
mental health concerns early and you can address them early, it, it, they, they, they often are less acute in the long run. And we can, we can really help make sure that, that kids are healthy and thriving. Um, and I think those are things we really can do in the pediatrician's office. Now, sometimes concerns are more acute or severe and they really do need um, much more specialized, you know, in-hospital mental health treatment or day treatment or things like that. And, and we can help make sure that kids get connected to that. You know, as we move forward and come out of this pandemic, I, I do think we're going to have to really look critically at, at, at our mental health system of care across the country, because it's just not designed to do all the things we need it to do right now. And so we, we are going to have to think differently about how we do that. I do want to pull the thread on Margaret's question about strategies. And thank you for talking very frankly about the behavioral health issue that children have and the role that pediatricians, pediatric practices play to have that communication. There are gonna be changes uh, to the way we approach uh, healthcare. I think telehealth has been a force multiplier. And I'm wondering, are there other innovative approaches? As we think about this new model of delivery, we're still in the midst of the pandemic, we are gonna get out of it, uh, but it, it's gonna have a profound impact on practices. What are you seeing out there? Yeah, I would echo your observations about telehealth. It is This is one of these things that in medicine for a long time, we've been talking about how great it would be to do more telehealth. And, and boy, we that accelerated really quickly <laughs> over a very short period of time. And that's good. Yeah. You know, I, I think there's some really good things about that. And that, that's going to be part of improving the mental health system of care is, is more accessibility to telehealth, because that, that's been really powerful thing that, that's come out of it. We are going to have to start thinking in, innovatively. I mean, one of the things that we have been thinking a lot about in pediatrics is what, what, do we, what kind of things do we do at our well-child visit and, and how is that set up and how, are the, what, how do we really um, better focus on the preventative and family support things that come up in those well visits? I mean, pediatricians do a great job of this, no, no doubt. But, but I think at the end of the day, sometimes our financing systems aren't set up to really support all those things that, that we do at those visits. And so I think that will be one thing that, that we're thinking about. And I think that, that we'll, we'll all probably think about in the future is, you know, what, what do those visits look like? There's an increasing um, discussion and understanding of the importance of, um, you know, sometimes we call it relational health. Sometimes we call it two generation approach, but essentially the, you know, the bottom line is that the, the family health and mental health so integrally impacts the child's health and mental health. Um, and so how as pediatricians, can we best support that? We're not adult doctors, um, but, but we do know that the family, the family is an important part of the child's health. And so how can we as pediatricians best support the family? So I think that is one thing we're really, really thinking about. I think another piece um, that, that's been so important and that I think we are actually seeing some good awareness and innovations on uh, is, is around immunization delivery and vaccine hesitancy. <laughs> As a, as a nation, we're talking about this more than we ever have. You know, as, as pediatricians, we've faced vaccine hesitancy for a long time. But there is, I think, a, a, a much greater understanding and, and uh, public will to, to be thinking about how do we combat misinformation? How do we promote confidence in vaccines? Um, and so I think there's a lot of, of opportunities for partnership and innovation there as well. You know, just two, you. two, two questions. One, we're seeing in our pediatric residency programs real concerned about the exposure that the pediatricians have had uh, either coming into the program, right? Less clinical engagement and wondering what you're seeing. And the second thing, what are we seeing happen with pediatric practices across the country? Are they 
rolling up, uh, less single shingles, more consolidation happening? Yeah, I think, you know, the challenge with the residents has been tough. I mean, and, and what I've been hearing is that is that, um, you know, they are, uh, you know, they're getting caught up, basically. So, you know, I mean, what, what I'm hearing from a lot of folks is that the interns maybe are a little rustier right at the beginning than, <laughs> um, than they typically are, but they, but that but that they're picking up speed pretty quickly that, you know, especially as, you know, sometimes for the medical students, they were doing a lot more telemedicine or not in-person right. stuff. And so, right. so they're, they're, they are, you know, pick, picking up, um, you know, we are also talking a lot about resident education around in pediatrics around things like medical, uh, things like mental health, um, you know, racism as an impact on child health, all, all those different, you know, pieces that we haven't done as good a job on educating, uh, educating with, you know, and I think with pediatric practices, um, we, we were, I mean, particularly at the beginning of the pandemic, we had a lot of practices that really right. struggled, um, you know, uh, you know, very senior leaders in the AAP talking about how they they were deferring their salaries so that they could pay their staff, um, you know, furloughing staff. I, that That is, um, for most practices, I think, picking up now, yeah. uh, particularly yeah. as kids are going back to school without masks. Um, and, uh, but also families are coming back for their well visits uh, and, and practices are having the flip side. I mean, I right. saw a note from a pediatrician in Alabama the other day that they have, um, uh, you know, sort of short hours on the weekends, like four hours a day, and they saw over 200 patients uh, over the weekend. Are you and seeing a dispar hours. any disproportionate uh, retiring going on at this point, or is it sort of the normal? Yeah, it's a good question. I anecdotally, I would say yes, um, but we don't quite, we do have a regular survey of our members, but it's not quite caught up to okay. to be able to yeah. tell us that. Right. So, I mean, anecdotally, yes, yeah. um, we are Absolutely. hearing that. We're, we're also hearing on the flip side, some of our younger members having to take, you know, leave their jobs or go part time or or just quit because they're they're having to take care of their kids at home because Absolutely. they're have young kids and their virtual schooling and the kid, they just, they can't do it all. But we didn't, we've talked mostly about primary care today. We didn't uh, talk about our colleagues who are uh, caring for kids in ICU uh, and inpatient, but I, I will tell you, you know, those, those are some of the voices I'd like to hear at the public hearings about masks and these demonstrations. I just don't pe think pe people got the idea early on that children did not get that sick mm -hmm. with COVID, which seemed to be true early right. on. Right. But we are seeing such a reversal uh, in that now. And if ever there was a compelling reason for the adults to go get vaccinated, it's to try and protect the kids. So thank you so much for yeah. all of your, your words today. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Of course, Absolutely. Well, and I think you're right. Like, even if it, it is like a couple percent of a whole lot of kids is a whole lot of kids. We've been speaking today with Dr. Lee Bears, president of the American Academy of Pediatrics, which represents 67,000 pediatric medical professionals in North America access their latest recommendations for sending children back to school amid a resurgence of COVID-19 and all of their important work by going to healthychildren.org, or you can follow them on Twitter at AmeriAcadPeds. Dr. Beers, thank you for your lifelong dedication to the health of children, for addressing health inequality in children and in pediatrics and for joining us today on Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. 
conversations on healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Falsehoods about the COVID-19 vaccines have been widely disseminated on social media. Two recent claims concerned the airline industry. Airlines, which suffered a steep decline in air travel last year due to the COVID-19 pandemic, are encouraging people who have received a COVID-19 vaccine to fly once again. Yet social media posts falsely claim that airline executives around the world are discussing banning vaccinated passengers due to a risk of blood clotting at high altitudes. Medical experts say there is no evidence of an added risk of blood clots for vaccinated air travelers. A spokesperson for the International Air Transport Association told us the organization is not aware of any airlines considering a ban on vaccinated passengers due to a blood clot risk. Long-distance travelers can develop a type of blood clot known as deep vein thrombosis, or DVT, after extended periods of immobility. A DVT typically forms in the leg and is a different disorder from these rare blood clot cases in the United States that have been associated with the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine. The individuals in those rare cases suffered from a combination of a type of blood clot called cerebral venous sinus thrombosis and low levels of blood platelets. Other viral claims said, without any evidence, that the deaths of four British Airways pilots and five Air India pilots were a result of receiving COVID-19 vaccines. British Airways said, quote, there is no truth whatsoever in the claims on social media speculating that the four deaths are linked. None of the deaths were linked to vaccines. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have FactCheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Anxiety disorders are on the rise among the nation's youth, and experts in the field of child psychology feel the condition starts much earlier in childhood and is far more common than previously thought with an estimated one in five children being affected. But too often, these so-called internalizing disorders go undiagnosed. Unlike children with more expressive conditions such as ADHD or autism spectrum disorder, young kids struggling with anxiety or depression often internalize their symptoms and may just seem like an introvert to the casual observer. University of Vermont child psychologist Ellen McGinnis says the process of diagnosis for younger children is often painstaking and can take months to confirm. Dr. McGinnis says the traditional method of diagnosis involves creating scenarios that induce anxiety, followed by behavioral observation by clinicians, and the results can be inexact. So she teamed up with her husband and fellow researcher, 
biomedical engineer Ryan McGinnis to create a wearable sensor that can pick up on physical cues that suggest the presence of anxiety, using accelerometers to compare normal stress responses. The device, it's about the size of a business card, and so we strap that to belts on each child. And when they did the mood induction task, it has an accelerometer in it. And so we're able to pick up angular velocity, speed, how much the child is turning side to side. And it actually picks up 100 samples per second. So we were able to see if kids with anxiety and depression move differently in response to a potential threatening information. And they do. Their research paper shows the device was nearly 85% accurate in making a correct diagnosis. And she says early diagnosis is the key to avoiding more damaging manifestations of anxiety disorder later on. A simple, wearable tool that can assist parents and clinicians in determining if a child is suffering from anxiety disorder, leading to more rapid diagnosis and treatment. Now that's a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.